0: One of my favorite books of all time, and it's probably uh, some of your favorite book uh, as, as well, is *The Hobbit* by J.R.R. Tolkien. In that book, there are scenes of adventures, there are riddles in the dark with the villainous Gollum, and there's a sense of Bilbo being carried along from one place of danger to another. One of the chapters is actually called "Out of the Frying Pan into the Fire." And it finds Bilbo and the rest of his companions having escaped from the Misty Mountains and the terrible goblins that were there. They've escaped them only to run into a a band of hungry and intelligent wolves called wargs. Bilbo and his band of dwarves escape one trial to run headlong into another because of the necessity of their task. Their mission is more important than the danger that awaits. And in Acts 5, 17-33, we see a similar scene where the apostles escape from one danger in a rather unexpected way to run right back into the fire, right back into the full view of the Sanhedrin. You see, their mission and their message are the most important thing. They must obey God, even when it means that they will stand in direct opposition to the religious leaders of their day. The same ones who put Jesus to the death have now set their sights squarely on the apostles. And so this morning, as, we, as we we're looking at our text, as we we're trying to understand what is the message that the Lord would have for us, this is the main idea that we believe, that I believe we see today. It's in order to please the King of heaven, sometimes you have to displease the rulers on earth. Or another way you might say it is in order to obey the king of heaven, sometimes you have to disobey the rulers on earth. And so we're going to take some time this morning to try to understand you know, and unpack this idea so that we would see how it applies to us in our life today. So would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to lead us to rightly think about this. Father, please help us. Help us to think rightly. Help us to be humble as we come to your word and we come to you. Father, I pray that we would desire to obey you in all things, even if it means that we would disobey rulers and authorities over us. But Father, we would do it in such a way that we would bring you glory and honor and that we would serve as witnesses to your greatness and your mercy and your power. Please protect us in all the ways that we can go astray with these ideas and please lead us to love and honor you. Father, ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. If you would, uh, look down starting in verse 17. We'll read the passage together. This is the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters, for us today. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. This is the word of the Lord for us today, brothers and sisters. This morning as we examine our text, we're going to start with asking the question, what is it that makes the apostles so bold to be able to stand up in the face of this kind of opposition? What is it that strengthens them and encourages them and lets them stand in this way? And we're going to see that their boldness flows out of God's faithfulness. This is why they are strong, because He is You see, the threat to to the church from persecution that started back in chapter 4 is continuing in our text this morning. The the apostles, having found themselves forbidden by the chief priests from speaking or teaching at all in the name of Jesus, as we see in chapter 4, verse 18, um, they're forbidden, and so they pray that God would look upon these threats from the religious leaders. And grant to to God's servants the ability to continue to speak His word with all boldness. And God answers this prayer. He answers it by earthquake and He answers it by power that He gives to them through the Holy Spirit to be bold specifically. He answers their prayer exactly as they ask. And as the apostles continue to minister to people in Solomon's portico, many signs and wonders are being done among the people by the hands of the apostles and many believers are being added to their number daily. Verse 14 of chapter 5. Hearts are being changed. Lives are being healed. And the message of the cross and the ministry of the Holy Spirit are in full effect. This is something that we rejoice in. And yet... The religious leaders, they're looking on and they're not joyful about this at all. In fact, the text tells us that their annoyance in chapter 4 has actually now turned to jealousy. As they see the esteem of the apostles rising in in the eyes of all the people, as verse 13 mentions, their annoyance is now full of jealousy and eventually be full of rage. Verse 18 tells us that this time... All of the apostles who were at Solomon's portico are arrested. This is an increasing of the temperature of the opposition against them where before a few of them were arrested. Now all of them are arrested and they're taken into this public prison. It's done in the sight of all of the people. And they're being held there until the next morning. The public arrest of the apostles is meant to bring shame and it's meant to bring humiliation on them. It was meant to end their ministry while it was in its beginning. But you know what? God has other plans in store. Don't you just just love it? When God turns something meant for evil into something He means for good. You see, that which was meant to cause the apostles shame has actually served God's purposes in embarrassing the officials. I mean, just imagine the look on the, on the chief priest, the, the, the chief of the priest's face. You know, he's, he's in his finest garments. He's got all his people gathered around looking as stern and as intimidating as they can. And they're like, bring in the prisoners. And they're like, we don't know where they are. <laughs> they're not here, right? And they say, where are they? And then eventually someone says, look, they're actually out in the middle of the temple preaching. The very thing we told them not to do, that's what they're doing. The prison could not stop God from freeing his faithful servants. And here's the thing. Now they're speaking all the more boldly because of God's actions. And their freedom serves to amplify their message because of the public nature of their imprisonment. I can just hear the crowd saying, we saw them arrested. And now they're free. And they're saying it's by an angel that they're delivered. We need to listen to them. We see all the, the works that God is doing. We should hear this message. Here's a further ironic twist for the Sadducees, part of this religious group. Not only do the Sadducees reject the reality of the resurrection and say that it couldn't possibly be true, but they also reject the idea that angels are real. And they have to look out and see the apostles standing in the middle saying, an angel delivered us from the prison in the middle of the night. How uncomfortable must they have felt in that moment. But as we look in verses 19 through 21, the first part of 21, we hear these words. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. The apostles are delivered out of prison, out of the frying pan, and they're told by the angel to go right back into the fire. They're to go right into the religious heart of Jerusalem, into the middle of the temple itself to speak the words of this life. That's what they're called to do. And what is remarkable about this is there doesn't seem to be any hesitation by the apostles here. They don't take a couple of days to let the heat die down. You know, they don't just try to let them forget about it for a few moments and then come in. No, this says they immediately, as soon as the sun comes up, they go into the temple. At the first opportunity they have, they go and they preach the words of this life. As we look at our text, it seems by the evidence that we've already heard and even what comes at the very end of this section where Peter's giving testimony and the apostles are in front of the high priests, that no amount of evidence seems to be able to convince the Sanhedrin that they are rebels to God. They're in opposition to to even hearing this word. And so no amount of evidence brought against them seems to convince them that they are rebels to God. And yet, it's also clear that no threats, no opposition could stop the apostles from obeying God. So we need to ask, what is it that makes the apostles so bold? What is it that that gives them this this strength and this passion? Is it not that God is with them? He's just proven that he can save them from from the enemy's prison. And every day they've been seeing God's might in action and his power in action through signs and wonders. But not just that. They know that their message is changing people's lives every day. Multitudes are being added to their number, so their message can't even wait for a day. We're going to go and we're going to preach because we're seeing people saved day by day. The message is so important. The importance of this mission and their desire to obey their king means that they will run headlong back into danger. You see, they're bold because their God is strong. And we are able to be bold Because our God is strong. He's able to strengthen us, encourage us, and lead us, and hold us. They're bold because He is strengthening them. There's, a, there's an event we do with the youth. We've done it multiple times where we'll take the youth to this place called Top Jump in, in Pigeon Forge. And I don't know if you've ever been to a trampoline park before, but it's, it's like that. But it also has a thing on the side where they have some climbing, a climbing area, where there's lots of, you know, obstacles and wall things that you can climb. And they have these, you know, these, these things that you clip into when you get in there. You put on your harness and you clip into these um, automatic belay systems. Right? So it looks like one of those dog leash things. You, you, know, you stretch out and it pulls back, except it's kind of big. There's no people holding it. It's just it's a machine on the ceiling, and you clip into it. And you're supposed to climb the wall and then just, just let off. And it'll catch you and slowly lower you back down. On the ground, that doesn't seem that terrifying. But when you get up about 20, 25 feet and you look down, you're like, I don't know that I trust this thing to catch me, Right? And so you're real hesitant first, you're up at the top, and you're like, well, I've got to do something. So you, you kind of let off, and it'll, it does. It catches you, and it, and it slowly lowers you back down. But guess what happens like two minutes after that? You know, the kids and you, like, you're climbing the wall as fast as you can, like jumping up to hit a button and like flying off the, the backside, and it's catching you, right? You're not, you're not afraid because of the strength of that harness. Um, and there's these, there's these pillars in the center of it, too. Like, they're, they, they kind of come in a, in a semicircle. Or, yeah, and and so like a spiral. And they start low and they go high. And the first kid that went on it, like they were holding their harness really tight and they were kind of stepping gingerly, you know, each each side, you know, each step to the next. And I think it took about a minute, we timed it, for them to get to the top. And then they gingerly came off the side with, you know, their harness being held. But soon thereafter... It wasn't 50 seconds anymore, 45 seconds or 30 seconds. The kids were sprinting up this thing and basically leaping off the edge as fast as they could because they knew that the harness would catch them. They knew its strength. And this is similarly true for us, brothers and sisters. What allows us to be bold is not because we're strong in ourselves, but because our God is strong. And here's the thing. When we pray that God will deliver us, We know that he is strong and that he has us in his grasp. And as with the apostles, he might lead us directly to another situation where we need to be delivered again. Even though he might deliver us from something before that we're praying about, he might lead us directly back into the fire. The promise isn't that we will be safe and sound, but the promise is that he will be with us. Even when we walk through things that feel like we're going through the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us, you know, as He leads us beside still waters. And He's he's with us as He leads us by the difficult places. But do we really want safe and sound? You know, safe and sound is fertile ground for the idolatry of comfort and the trust of of things to satisfy us. Safe and sound leads to a, a sleepiness of the soul. But trials and hardships teach us to depend upon our God in any and every moment. And His faithfulness fuels our boldness. His faithfulness is what enables us to be strong. And so I want you to think about this. I want you to think, where have you experienced boldness that flowed out of God's faithfulness? How have you experienced God's faithfulness in a moment that it led you to then be strong, continuing on? You know, Maybe it's evangelism. Maybe, maybe you've been sharing good news with a friend. and right, You felt nervous about it. You weren't sure exactly how they were going to receive it or if God was even going to use that in a, in a super powerful way. And yet God used your words as you share with them to help that friend. And all the more you desire to do that again for others. All the more you desire to share because you've seen God's ability to work through that situation and being faithful. I can remember when Kat and I first got married, um, someone, uh, I guess, trusted the Lord, had felt the leading of the Lord to give us uh, an envelope, and it had a $100 check, not a check, it was a $100 bill they gave to us. He's trying to bless us and I think encourage us. And hundred dollars is a lot of money to us. It was, and it, and it still is, right? And and I remember, uh, Kat wrote on the envelope. She wrote uh, God's provision, and and we just set it aside. And I can remember so many times, especially in those first you know few months or maybe years that we had it, just looking to that and, and being reminded and thankful of God's provision. Even when we didn't say anything out loud, He knew what we needed, and He provided. And eventually, we spent that hundred dollars that was in that provision, but we did it thankfully, knowing that it was provided by God for that purpose. And it encourages me even today to know that God is going to be faithful. He's always faithful in that provision and we can trust him, even in being generous givers. You know, you can trust the Lord to be able to do that because he is faithful. So that's boldness flowing out, not of my own goodness or, or anything, but because of his faithfulness. And I'm sure there are multiple instances where you can remember those things too, in your own life. But our, our boldness ends up being expressed in obedience to the king. ends up being obeying and following what he would call us to do. And as we remember the main idea this morning, we need to remember that it's this: that's in order to please the king of heaven, sometimes you have to displease rulers. On earth, Sometimes you have to disobey them to obey our, our Heavenly Father. And, and, and there's a tension in this passage. As we, as we read the text, there's, there's a question that we need to ask or a few. And it's namely, when is it right, if ever, to resist or rebel against God-ordained authorities that He has placed over you? When is it right to do that? For we know that God is the one who placed them in authority over us. And in Romans 13:1 through2, we hear these words: "Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment." So we've got that on this hand. But we also know the sinfulness of man and that those in authority can abuse or misuse their power for selfish gain or to subvert righteousness and justice. The death of Jesus being the prime example where this took place. So when is it right? When is it right for us to rebel against God-ordained authorities that He's placed over us? So we need to ask that question. But the second is this, by what means is it right to resist those same authorities. So both the when and the how are vital. If we, if we get either of these wrong, we slip into lawlessness. And worse, we risk placing ourselves in opposition to God Himself. And so we need to, we need to think soberly about this. When is it right to resist earthly authority? In verses 27 through 32, the main confrontation begins with the high priest where he says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. For the religious leaders had expressly forbidden the apostles from speaking in the name of Jesus and this is something they cannot do so there's two clear instances as we think about this when it would be appropriate for us to rebel against those who are in authority over us the first is this when leaders require us to do what is forbidden by God then it would it could be right for us to to rebel against those authorities But also, when leaders forbid us to do what God has required, it's also appropriate for us to resist that. So, when leaders require us to do what's forbidden by God, or when leaders forbid us to do what God has required of us, then it's right for us to resist. And in the case of the apostles, they're being forbidden from preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. They're being forbidden from doing what God has required, and and they cannot obey this command from the religious leaders because God, who is a greater authority than those religious leaders, had commanded them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They cannot, they cannot obey this where the leaders are, are are forbidding them from doing what God has required. But in the Old Testament, we see an example of where a leader is requiring them to do something that God tells them they can't do. If we look at the story of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, where he's commanding Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to worship the golden image that that he erects. and He says, either worship this image or be cast into the fiery furnace. The king is requiring idolatry, which God expressly forbids. So what do they do? They refused to obey. In both cases, their refusal to obey these commands was right. We must obey God rather than men. Even if it's costly, it's right for us to obey God. But we can also say it in kind of the opposite way we must not disobey God in order to obey the lesser commands from others. We must not disobey God to, to obey the lesser commands. From those that are in authority over us. So, as we think about the apostles here, I want you to recognize they're primarily concerned with obedience to God here, not disobedience. They're doing everything in their power to obey God because they must preach the gospel. But you also see something really interesting in verse 26. Though the apostles are resisting the command not to teach in Jesus' name, they nevertheless follow and obey the captain of the temple and peacefully go where the Sanhedrin requires. Think about this. They're rebelling in, in one sense, but in the other commands where they're not told to disobey God, they actually go along with it and obey. They show honor. So this is an important idea for us. Their disobedience only extends as far as is necessary to obey God. That's the extent of their rebellion. Insofar as they were keeping them from obeying God, they will rebel. But in, in the other instances, they don't. They go along willingly. They're not generally defiant to those in authority over them. So what's happening is the apostles are keeping the overreach by the religious authorities in check by resisting them. And yet they're also honoring them and complying with them. This is a really helpful balance for us to strike. Whether we might be people who would roll over in the, in the face of things we don't like, or maybe we, we feel the desire to revolt. It's really helpful to, to think about, like, both of those tendencies could be wrong in the situation. To always be revolting or, or never to speak up could be wrong. So I want you to think about, where do you, where do you find it hard to strike this balance in your own life? Do you, do you consistently feel like rebelling against those in authority over you? Maybe outwardly, it doesn't, it doesn't appear that, but, but in your heart, do you rebel against them? Do you have that you know, inward eye roll of the heart when, when people say things that you don't want to do? Do you desire to rebel not because of a desire to obey God, but because you have a rebellious spirit toward authority in general? Do you hate being told to do and you instead want to do things your own way probably because you think you're right? And teenagers, I can promise you that it's not just you that struggles with this problem, right? It's common to mankind. Or maybe, maybe you romanticize rebellion because our country was born out of a revolution. So you think we should do that again. You see, that's one way the pendulum swings, but even as it comes back the other way, there can be a problem. We must not give approval to the things that God says are wrong. Even if the whole weight of the culture is behind those things, even if the culture says this is what you must do. Brothers and sisters, We may think that this passage is about any number of things, but I can tell you this. This passage is not primarily about rebellion, but it's about revival. You know, if you look around and long for the days of the past when when the culture was different, you might be tempted to to think that a revolution can make this happen. You know, if enough people rebel, we can change the country back to how it ought to be. You know, we we need to realize that that new programs and, and new laws and new leaders won't necessarily change our culture for the better. Even if we could go back to the way things used to be. Say you you, you know you remember fondly the seventies the or the eighties, the, the same problems with sin would remain. The same divisions would bubble under the surface. Instead of focusing primarily on changing the culture, we instead should focus on changing the hearts of those in the culture. And that starts with the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And it spreads from one person to another, one pulpit to another. Our country doesn't need a Republican or Democratic president in order to be made better. That we recognize that the way that our Governors rule and the laws they pass, those things are important for our daily lives. They impact us in a real way. Nevertheless, a country doesn't need that. Our country needs to look to Jesus. We need to have hearts that love and are transformed by Jesus to be transformed and to be made better. So when is it right to resist authority? When is it right for us to rebel against those that God has put in in authority over us? We resist in order to obey God. That's when. We resist when we must because we desire to obey our God. And so brothers and sisters, that's that's the answer to the first part. But if resisting the authority is right in a situation... We need to ask the second part of the question, how should we resist? What does that even look like? What does it look like for us to be in a rebellion against them? Well, Verse 21, the first part, verse you know, 21a, tells us what the rebellion of the apostles looked like. It says this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. This is what their rebellion looked like. They continue to share with the people about how Christ is risen from the dead and seated as both the true, uh, their true leader and savior. They're bold because God is with them and they're willing to walk right into the fiery furnace of the Sanhedrin because they know that Christ is worth the cost. But here's the thing. Here's, here's where I think we will probably experience at least a lot of, of, of opportunities for us to, to, to walk in this, right? Here's a place where we need to think, uh, where I think we'll have a lot of impact in our lives where um, we may need to resist. And it's, and it's this. Sometimes our resistance will look like refusing to give approval to something that is clearly condemned in the scriptures. I think this is a place we're gonna be continually having to think about this. No matter the repercussions that the rulers might bring upon us, We must refuse to give approval to something that's clearly condemned in the Scriptures. You know, it's not right to give approval to the things that God causes evil, even if they are the cultural norm. We shouldn't give approval to the myriad of ways in which marriage and sexuality has been subverted both outside and sadly even within the church at times. We can't approve of the slaughter of those in the womb or encourage euthanasia for the old or for the infirm. And in our desire to obey God, we love our neighbors and we love our family members best by speaking the truth of God's desire for them in their singleness and in their relationships and in their being made male and female, and affirming, in affirming the sanctity of human life and in every other category that, we def- that God defines. But here's also the thing. I bet that everyone in their room right now would say, I agree with that. But the specific examples are where it gets really hard right where where it impacts you in your job you know wherever you are like or as a college student with the policies that are being passed down to you you know as you you go into these you know meetings maybe you have to attend a diversity and inclusivity training and they tell you that you must affirm a person's preferred gender pronouns even though you know they're not consistent with their god-given gender what do you do there how do you respond and there's a whole host of numerous ways in which we might have to act in a way against something that we think is unjust we can't possibly answer all of the situations today but what we can do is try to provide principles that we draw out of this passage and principles for action so that we can rightly think about those situations and see how does it look like or what would it look like for us to respond And so the first thing I think we need to do is pray. And this is exactly what the apostles do here. When they are are, um, confronted, they pray. They ask God to hear those threats from the opposers. They ask God for strength and to give them the ability to speak and to be bold. And God answers that prayer. And so the first thing I think we need to do, brothers and sisters, is pray. When we're confronted at work or when we're in these places where it seems difficult to know how to act, pray and ask God for wisdom and ask God to move. And to give us boldness. I think a second thing we can do is is check our motives. We need to ask the question, why do we feel the need to resist? And is this the best course of action? Is resisting really the only thing that I can do? Or is there a better way to respond? And the third is this. Again, it comes directly from our text. That we only resist to the extent that you're required in order to obey God. You don't resist in ways outside of that. That you resist to the extent that you're required to obey by God. And the fourth is that we look for an opportunity to share not just—I'm sorry—we look for an opportunity to share what we are for, not just what we're against. Again, the apostles do this very clearly when they're brought up and the charges are read. They're saying, "We told you not to do this. Why didn't you?" They they share very clearly. A message of hope in Christ. And that transformation, even potentially for those Sanhedrin, can come through Christ. They share what they're for. And brothers and sisters, we should do this as well. But if it's not a situation of, you know, life and death, which most of the situations that we're in aren't like that. You know, the opposition isn't so great that we're just thrown in prison. I think there's opportunities in our, in our workplace. Also, as, as you approach the leader, you approach them not just with a problem, but, but propose the solutions that would be helpful. And even volunteer to be a part of the solution. And frankly, if, we, if we're thinking about laws, for example, that, that are unjust, one of the ways that we can be a part of the solution is to try to, to be a part of those who make the laws. And we can serve our, our communities in ways that we can then advocate for things that are good. And lastly, if you're wrestling with how you should respond, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to seek wisdom from your fellow brothers and sisters. You know, those people in your growth group that have walked through similar situations as you have, or or maybe they haven't, but they're willing to pray with you and encourage you and bring the word to you. I think all of these things, as we apply them in our situation, it will give us wisdom to help know better how we should respond and what it looks like for us to glorify God in these situations. It will help direct us and point us in the right direction, even though there's a whole host of numerous ways in which this could play out. But I can also tell you what it doesn't look like. What it doesn't look like, or what God would would not call us to do, is this. We must never resist rulers and authorities by twisting the Scripture passages to justify rebellion against rightful authority. The events of January 6th were shameful and confusing for our country. Where the Congress gathered to count the number of duly submitted electors and and some take up the cause of the rebel to try to save democracy or to try to strike back with what they think is an unjust process. And I'm sure that there were many people or some people, at least in the Capitol, that were citing this passage as justification for that rebellion. We must obey God rather than men. And so we're going to go into the Capitol with riotous and murderous intent to do harm. You see, the criteria for the rebellion on January 6th wasn't from this passage. You know, we we definitely have sympathies when we when we see injustice. It's right for us to, to not uh, give approval to injustice. But for the Christian, Revolution should not be the first resort, it should be the last. And again, we should you know, pray and, and act in such a way that brings glory and honor to our King. First and foremost, our obedience is to Him. And I am confident that if we are ever called to rebel to our governmental authorities as a church, the form of our rebellion will look similar to that of the apostles. Namely, obedience to the Great Commission and the faithful execution of preaching and teaching the Word of God. That's what our rebellion will look like. I trust that we will continue whatever the consequences or leverage that might be brought against us to remain a people who love our neighbors. That We even love those that would persecute us. We love them with the love of Christ so that they could be transformed. And I pray that what was said about the apostles' ministry would be said of us. Namely, that we have filled Maryville and Knoxville and beyond with the teaching of Jesus. Let that be the charge against us. That would be fantastic. But may our rebellion and our obedience look the same in that sense. Here's what I mean. Our rebellion and our obedience should look the same in the sense that we're always faithfully proclaiming the risen Christ, the one who is our leader and savior, as verse 31 mentions. And so, brothers and sisters, as we think about this passage, I want to ask you, I want you to think about this hard. Do you need to repent of your attitudes or actions of rebellion to God Or the leaders that He has placed over you because that rebellion was not biblically justified? And have you tried to fight with the wrong weapons or with insults instead of the truth spoken in love? I want want us to examine our hearts, allow the Holy Spirit to, to show those places. And I want to encourage you that if you see those those places that need to be repented of, verse 31 tells us plainly as Peter and the apostles proclaim that God exalted Jesus at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel, I would say also to the church, and the forgiveness of sins. So even if we've been in rebellion to God, He will give repentance and forgiveness to us as we come to Him. And so let us do that. So as we, we're answering the question, the when and the how is it right to rebel, we see that the apostles rebel against the religious leaders in order to obey God. And this, and this starts with them sharing the words of life with them. As the high priest has the apostles stand before him in this trial, you can see the weapons of their warfare being brought to the fight. The high priest makes the charge of the apostles or to the apostles that they're trying to make the Sanhedrin guilty for the blood of Jesus. He says, You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Man, I wish we had cameras back then that could record their faces as these charges are being made. Because I know that Peter and James and John, I can just see a little smile come up on the side of their face as they realize the high priest doesn't even understand what he's just said. He doesn't know how right he truly is. You see, the scriptures tell us that any charge should only be admitted on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Here's what happened. The, the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin to stand trial. Like they were being accused of something. But their response is so good because it shows the totality of the witness is not against the apostles, but it's actually against the religious elite. This is what, this is what they say. Starting in verse 29, they say, We must obey God rather than men. And in verse 30, we hear, The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter is explaining with this statement that all three members of the Godhead and the apostles stand as witnesses to the guilt of the Sanhedrin. All of them stand against them. What was meant to serve as a trial for the apostles has turned into a trial for the Sanhedrin, and they have been found guilty. Their guilt is undeniable. Even as they sought to outsource Jesus' killing to the Romans, they cannot escape being responsible for their actions. They're the ones who led the crowd to proclaim in Matthew 27, Let him be crucified. And they incited the crowd to also say, His blood be on us and on our children. Brothers and sisters, here's the good news for the sinner and for the rebel to God. This is the reason I think that Peter and the apostles would have smiled. Because the apostles did want to bring Jesus' blood upon them. But not just in guilt. No, they, they wanted them to see that, that Jesus' blood needs to cover them as the very source of cleansing and life. For it is by the blood of the crucified Lord that any of us are made righteous. So not, we don't need just blood on our hands. We need to be totally covered by the blood of Christ because it is by His sacrifice that we are made clean and pure and righteous. We must have his blood on us as a covering for our sin. And they wanted, to, they wanted to curse Jesus by hanging him on a cross to bring Jesus and his name into ill repute by this most shameful of deaths. But even that worked to advance God's purposes because Jesus had to become a curse for us on the cross so that we did not have to bear the curse ourselves. And in the greatest ironic twist of all time, this very act the, that the religious leaders did, that they thought would remove and destroy Jesus and His influence and His name once and for all, only works to ensure that He will never be forgotten, Because He has completed the salvation for His people. It is this truth, brothers and sisters, that brings revival. This is what brings change and new life. Not revolt, but the proclamation of the truth in Christ. Sadly, the response of the religious leaders only intensifies against this message. Verse 33 tells us that when they heard these words, they were enraged and wanted to kill the apostles. Their annoyance turned to jealousy, and now was full on rage and hatred. But glory be to God, that even this will serve to accomplish the purposes of Christ in helping to embolden the apostles' witness all the more. God turns what His enemies mean for evil into good for the world and for His church. Therefore, even now, we can be confident that whatever threats whatever persecutions rise against the church of the living God, he will use those circumstances for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Brothers and sisters, we can be confident that what Peter and the apostles say in verse 31 is true. That Jesus is exalted at God's right hand and he is our true leader and savior. Even now... Jesus is ruling and reigning as our King and our Lord, offering forgiveness and repentance to those who seek Him. We can be bold because He is with us through the power of His Spirit, and we can trust that He is working all things for the good of His church and the glory of His name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray. Pray that you would lead us in faith to respond in a way that would be right and good. Father, that we would desire more than anything to be obedient to you in all circumstances. And Father, I rejoice that you are our sovereign king. Lord, that you had this passage for us you know, before the events of even January 6th happened. Lord, you sovereignly led us to this passage for this day. And I rejoice in your word. Lord, lead us to trust you, God, to know that you're working all things for the good of your church, for those who love you and are called according to your purposes, Lord, that we can trust you even if things are really hard. And Father, in whatever way you desire to strengthen your church, I pray that you would do that. Pray that you would embolden our hearts with whatever it takes for that to happen so that we would be more and more like you That we would love you in an increased way. Father, help us where we're weak. And lead us in joy, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.